Hello and welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim and Sergey. And this is a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And this is our 100th time saying that. Holy Ooh. Christmas. This is our 100th episode of The Mentors. Thank you so much for tuning into every single one of the painful moments that we've... Um, <laughs> we try to keep things light over here on the Mentors Podcast, but I can tell you that a little over a year ago, when Vadim and I decided we we're going to start a podcast around entrepreneurship and how people get started, I remember telling my girlfriend Jackie that, hey, listen, we're going to publish one episode a week at least. Don't let us quit until we have 52 episodes at the end of the year. Well... Pretty soon after, we started publishing two episodes a week, and before you know it, we now hit 100 about 14 months later, and I'm pretty excited that we were able to hit this milestone. It's I'm just excited that we followed through and that you, our audience, listened and cared and shared with your friends and continue to do so, and it just has become such a fun thing that we do every week. Yeah, and I think I mean, that's part of the reason why we have followed through is, actually, we talk about this on the show a lot, when you attempt to do something, when you take an initiative, when you get out there and create something for the world, it could be your business, it could be your art, it doesn't really matter, something unique to you, things happen from there that you could not have anticipated, and that has been the experience with the show over and over and over again. Through the dozens and dozens of interviews that we've had with incredible people that have motivated us every single time we talk to somebody, and we're not kidding. I mean, every person that you that we've had on this show has taught us something, and there was there were great takeaways. And even to the episodes we did together, you know, thinking through how to structure them, how to package them into a way that actually uh, is helpful to our audience and into something that can be actionable for you, we then end up using ourselves. So it's helpful for ourselves. And then other opportunities like the writing opportunities we've gotten, media partnerships, all this other stuff that we could not have anticipated before we decided to do this. Yeah, that, that is why we talk a lot about why it's worth to try creating something from nothing just because you can't anticipate where it will lead you. And so for today's episode, we decided, even though we have a couple of awesome guests coming up for you in the next two weeks, we decided for this episode to be more of a look back, I guess almost like a highlight reel of some of our top episodes. And so we chose six of our top episodes with about four or five minute snippets from each one that we thought were the most interesting. And these were some of our most popular episodes. So you can get a little bit of a taste if you haven't heard of some of this content before of what it is that we talk about. And if you have, maybe it'll be a good reminder for you about a lesson learned from one of the great founders that we were able to get on our show. If you want to find any of these episodes that we mention throughout, there's a few ways to do it. I mean, one, obviously, is just open up iTunes or whatever your podcast listening platform is, give us five stars, and then scroll down to the episode that that you want to listen to. Or go to thementors.co, and actually on the homepage, about halfway through, there's a section called Most Popular, uh, where we have all of these episodes listed there for you, so they're easy to find. So the first episode that we're going to preview is one of our all-time most popular episodes. And I guess it shouldn't be a surprise because it's called Becoming Unstuck, How to Finally Get Started, Episode 7. This is a snippet from Becoming Unstuck. We Literally, we all we talk about in this episode is how to get away from just thinking of ideas and actually go and put them into action and how to get better at doing it yourself. The idea for this episode came from an article that... Who wrote? I wrote or you wrote? I forget now. On goalcast.com, it had over... 10,000 shares and it 
we realize that this is a subject that's not only important to us, which is why we decided to do an episode about it, but what people care about all the time. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. It doesn't matter if you're successful yet or not, whatever that means to you. We sometimes just feel stuck, even in our personal lives. So this episode hopefully gives you some uh, ideas about how to get unstuck, how to get out of that funk and actually move forward. You owe it to yourself to find that happiness, and that means first becoming aware and understanding why it is you're not acting towards um, uh, becoming a better you and and becoming happier and doing something that really, really uh, makes you feel fulfilled. So speaking of acting, uh, I'll tell you a little bit of an anecdote from my own life. Um, I remember Vadim and I grew up watching I Love Lucy uh, because that's how we learned English. Thanks a lot, Lucille Ball. Love her. And uh, for some reason, I, I saw a documentary on her career and I got in my head that I really want to be an actor. Now, I'm not one to be that interested in becoming a starving artist and dropping everything I'm doing uh, to be an actor full-time, which is why I'm not an actor full-time. But um, around my early 20s, I had this idea that I want to give it a shot. Uh, At one point, I was in between jobs, and I wanted to try acting a little bit more seriously. My goal was to see if I can get even a small role on uh, like a real production. And, you know, we're talking about resetting our thinking here. I actually took an acting class where we got to pitch or we got to, I should say, um, do a scene in front of an agent. And at the end of the scene, the agent told me, like, why are you doing this? You are not good at this. <laughs> he said, first of all, he said, why did you choose that scene? It's such a difficult scene to do. You should have just at least chosen something you're good at. Now, I thought it was all right, but hey, to each their own. So I could have walked away from that experience thinking, well, I should just give up, right? This one person, this agent who sees many actors told told me I don't have it. Uh, and how am I ever going to get break into acting without an agent? But I chose to sort of reframe my thinking and said, okay, if I don't have enough experience to be attractive to somebody that is experienced, how can I create that for myself? All I had done was a couple of plays in, in school and a musical in college. Enough for, to have a little bit of a resume, but nothing really impressive for anybody else. So I decided right then and there that I'm going to try to find a production, uh, a feature-length film, which is a full-length film, that is being created where they're looking for free actors and I'm just going to use my tiny little resume of two things to try to get a gig on on a feature film, but I'm not going to agree to do anything unless it's a significant speaking role, one of the leads. And it took me about, I think, four or five months of searching Craigslist for roles, but I ended up finding this film being uh, created by these two young film students uh, with a tiny budget, I think about $10,000, $15,000 total, which for a movie... Uh, most movies are in the in the millions, if not tens of millions. Uh, but um, but they needed a, an actor, and they weren't able to pay them. So my little resume was enough, and I ended up getting a role that was fairly significant. It turned out that those guys were actually pretty good at what they did, and even with a ten thousand dollar budget, they created a film that looked pretty damn good, if I should say so myself. Maybe the editing could have been a little bit better, but the film looked good. And now all of a sudden, I had a real. Uh, which is a, a piece of footage that showed me as a professional actor in a lead role. So once I had that, I already built up my resume a little bit more, and and then uh, and and then I had something to show to people that showed them that I was a serious actor. I'll get into more a little bit later about how I actually scored my next gig in the, in the next section that we'll talk about. 
But something that important that you said is what your acting teacher said to you, which is, why did you pick that scene? You should have picked something that you're good at. This next episode is actually one of our first interviews, and it ended up going kind of viral, especially on Reddit, because it was a story about a gentleman that didn't start his first company until he was 55 years old and grew it to a $90 million business. And in this snippet, you'll hear from Larry about his thought process and what were some of the first things he did when he decided that he's going to go off on his own and start his own thing. When you were first starting out, when you made that decision that you're going to go into business for yourself, what was the first thing that you did? I was working for a company. I was president. Uh, the chairman, who I really liked and got along with, he retired. And I just thought, is there really a future? And, and I, I went and I hired an executive coach mm-hmm. uh, for a few thousand dollars, a really nice guy, lovely guy, very smart. I knew his dad. He was head of the School of Communication uh, at West, West Connecticut University. So Bill and I sat down and we had several dinners and lunches and he kind of liked helped me figure out what I was really worth and what I really wanted. And I knew I wouldn't, I, I could go on doing what I was doing, working for somebody else till I was 65, 70, whatever time, and have a great retirement and all that. But he determined through Myers Briggs personality assessments and just conversations with people who knew me. And as he got to know me, I wouldn't be happy. So he said to me at the end of our six month engagement, he said, you have every tool necessary to start your own business. But more importantly, you don't have that big an ego. If it failed with your reputation and your resume, you could go to work for anybody else in the city. And that, that was my safety valve. Mm-hmm. I said, what do I have to lose? Um, my wife and I uh, had no debt to speak of other than our mortgage. We had owned the house for a while. My kids were grown and gone. They were all married. They had kids of their own, so they have lives of their own, didn't depend on me for anything. And I figured it's not like I'm mortgaging the house. And in my business, you really just need an office space, a few hundred thousand dollars for insurance, and then you start getting work. And basically, as a construction manager, 92 cents on every dollar you collect thereabouts is the subcontractors or vendors money. So what you have to put in to manage the job, figure the cost, the insurance, is not that big a risk to start a construction company. But you mentioned uh, earlier, <clears throat> first of all, actually what I want to uh, mention is that it's great that you know you went out there and you're willing to talk to an executive coach or whoever it takes, right? You were right. at a crossroads. And a lot of people get to this point where they're uncertain. They don't know what step to take. Um, and what we always say is you got to get out of your own head a lot of times. You have yes. to talk to people. So it could be an executive coach. It could be a mentor, an advisor. It could be a friend or somebody in the industry that you really trust. It really doesn't matter whatever works for you. But that clearly gave you just a little bit of motivation, maybe a little push yes. to go ahead and start it yourself. But even what you, you folks do, um, and anybody listening to this podcast, you, you hear people from all different businesses. And I'm sure there's you know the common denominator in any kind of business of what it takes to start it. So you guys as mentors for somebody, you know, whether it's a young person or somebody my age, be an invaluable resource because you've heard, I know from my business, I know what it takes. And I've read enough books to know that there are common denominators in every business. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, but being able to, being willing to go out and talk to people. So a lot of people, you know, they get scared, they are vulnerable, they 
might have ideas, but they're worried that somebody's going to think they're stupid. I mean, it, you know, there's a variety of reasons and uh, excuses that you can come up with not to take that first right. step, but you need to take that first step. Um, but you mentioned, so you, you talked to an executive coach. You had an idea that you want to start a business. You maybe got some temporary office space, but you mentioned that people, word got out that you were starting a business. You know, a lot of the people that might be listening, they might have ideas, but they get bogged down with what are literally the first steps that I'm doing. You know, am I sending e-cold emails? Am I cold calling people? Am I calling my referral? So did you get into that temporary office space in the morning at 8.30 and pick up the phone and start calling uh, people that you knew to get the word out? Or how'd you get the word out? I had to wait until I was officially gone from the place I was working, even though I gave them like a three-month notice. Um, And what I did is, the first thing I did is I bought three computers. And I had a friend who was a financial guy, and he was out of work on unemployment. I said, listen, how about I pay you to help me get systems and procedures set up. He was in the construction business. So he did that. Uh, a friend of mine that I worked with at the old other company that ran the Boston office and the London office retired after his wife had died. But we remained friends. He was living in Virginia. And I said, uh, his name is Nick. I said, listen, you're not doing anything. Why don't you come up here? I'll get you an apartment and help me get this started. And then there was a young woman, Tina, who um, worked for me as an estimator. And she had taken a month off. She was thinking about starting a family and whatnot. And I said, before you decide what you want to do, why don't you come to work for me and help me get this thing started with, you know, estimating and whatnot. And I said, if nothing else, the next six months will be an incredible experience for you because you'll, you're will you really going to learn what it takes to start a business. And we literally went into an office that was probably half the size of this room we're sitting in. And we're in a pretty small room. <laughs> yeah, at 192 Lex, one of those Broadway suite types of places with folding tables, the three computers I bought. And I told everybody before the holidays I started, I think the Monday was a January 4th of 2011. I said, on that Monday, you report to this address, the fourth floor, whatever it was, at 9 o'clock. And just started calling people, getting the bank relationship set up, you know, and just doing that. And then within two months, we started getting a couple little jobs, you know, 50,000, 100,000. And then the bank contacted us a few months later and we were rolling. Okay, so this next episode is episode 11, How to Network Like a Pickup Artist. And uh, don't let the name scare you. Um no, no, we don't talk about picking up chicks or, or dudes or anything like that. Although we do draw parallels in that episode about dating and approaching new people and how that's actually oftentimes similar to networking and the fears we have around networking. So take a listen to hear about some tips about how to get over those fears. When you're meeting people in person, when you're building a true connection, you never know how that's going to pay dividends in the future. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is what I call the three-second rule of not giving a fuck. <laughs> Pardon my French, but it just... Uh, uh, Don't swear, Vadim. Sorry. We have children that listen to remember babies. You're not my mother. I... Uh, sorry, Mom. Actually, if you're listening to this... Um, well, we swear all the time, so sorry. Sorry, Mom. Uh, this is how it works in the business world. But uh, we could find the three-second rule of not giving a hoot. A hoot. Is that better? A That's hoot. better. I like it. Okay. Uh, well, so uh, I should say Vadim is, uh, disclaimer, ladies, eligible bachelor. He is yes, single is. right now. Uh, I think you came up with this rule for yourself. I did. Uh, to get rid of some of the nerves associated with approaching 
uh, people, I should say, of the female variety in New York City. Um, But I've actually used this rule for myself in networking events when I want to make sure that I'm using my time effectively and speaking to as many people as possible. What is the three-second rule, Vadim? Well, first of all, uh, I should just add that the reason why this is so analogous to a networking event is because for a man, approaching a woman a lot of times, or an attractive woman, but really any woman, you build just you build it up in your head as if it's this crazy thing that you have to do. And same thing in a networking event. If there's somebody important that you want to come up to, again, you might think, oh, why would they want to talk to me? They're important. And so that's why there's so much um, overlap there. But the three-second rule is pretty straightforward. Basically, uh, it breaks it down to three seconds to actually get in to talk to somebody. Rule number one, second number one, make eye contact, right? Make eye contact with a person uh, so that you don't just uh, come up to them randomly and start talking without developing some kind of social interaction. So second one, in the first second, you should make eye contact. In the second second, you should make the approach. And in the third second, you need to start the conversation. Now, it's pretty straightforward and you might think, uh, okay, that's really dumb. Obviously, I can do this. But um, by taking it and breaking it down into three seconds and by giving yourself only three seconds to do something like this, you're taking away all of the uh, hyping yourself up and the decision-making that our brains like to go through before coming up to somebody, let's say, or doing something risky like ma- making yourself vulnerable, putting yourself out there, and talking to somebody. And you know, the natural the question that comes after this is, okay, fine, let's say I got past the mental barrier and I just go up and talk to somebody, right? Because that's the whole point of this is just don't overthink it. Just get up there, make eye contact first, hopefully, and just start talking to somebody without spending too much time thinking of what am I going to say. So then what do you say when you come to somebody? Well, if you're really worried about that, I suggest just say hello. Come up to somebody and say, hey, how are you? Or, hey, what brings you to this event? Or, hey, are you from the area? You know, really bland, easy, straightforward things that you literally don't have to think about for more than three seconds to say. The, the beauty of this rule and the reason why the th- three seconds in particular is so important is actually the more you do it, the more you condition your brain to just act it, after a certain cutoff point. Uh, you, you basically tell yourself, if you tell yourself that no matter what, within those three seconds, I'm going to approach that person. In the beginning, that's really hard and you it'll take you more than three seconds. You'll be agonizing over it. But the more you do it and actually just start walking toward a person and opening them up, or in other words, that's big up artists, artists mm-hmm. speak, open up someone. But really just saying something to them within that short period of time, the more comfortable next time you'll be with just seeing a stranger. Once you make eye contact, your brain will already know that it's okay to start talking to them. And in particular, in, in, in bars, there's some, <laughs> I think, implicit, it's just implicitly a social setting where you can approach someone. But networking events are even better for that. When you're at a networking event, when you're at a conference, when you're at a meetup, people are there to meet other people. So it's actually not awkward. It's already implied that it's not awkward to come up to someone uh, if they are there, right? Just by virtue of them being there. In fact, even if there's a group of people standing together talking and you make eye contact with somebody, you can just come up and say, oh, hey, uh, don't want to be just standing around here awkwardly. How you doing? Uh, what are you guys talking about? Sounds really interesting, right? So you can even make a little joke about it. But maybe you overheard them say something and you could say, I'm not eavesdropping, but uh, I love cryptocurrency and everybody's talking about it right now. What do you, how can I uh, join this conversation, right? If you haven't heard our three-part series about a man that we admire so much, our own father. Our papa. 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 
Um, <laughs> we, we have a three-part series called How to Do What You Love in a Communist Country, and the third part is actually called How to Make It in America, and it's a story about how our parents basically had to start over. And this is episode 30, and you can hear a little bit about how we basically had to start from scratch in a completely new country and how my dad's entrepreneurial nature really saved our whole family. So in fact, we, we didn't have that much money when we came here. It was, it was very little, enough just to pay rent for, for a few months, uh, maybe buy groceries and things like that on a weekly basis, but really uh, try hustling to get jobs pretty quickly. My mom actually at that point knew, must have known, that a lot of the burden would be on her shoulders because she was one of the only ones in our family that spoke English fluently. Um, one of our older brothers who also shared an apartment with us also spoke English and he went and got a job very quickly, but uh, it wasn't an easy beginning by any means. So me and Sergey, the beautiful blondes that we were, were excited about just about anything. <laughs> uh, so for example... You're really making us sound like super sexy, like mid-90s blondes. Uh, they can't see us, so they won't know. Okay, um, but... <laughs> You know, little things like being able to go to the grocery store, we would fill up our uh, grocery cart with hundreds of dollars worth of shopping. Now, this was for seven people, obviously, but still. And there were fruits from every single season you could imagine. We didn't have that in Belarus. We'd have to wait in line for butter sometimes if it wasn't available because butter was seasonal. Uh, or, you know, b get banana, like five bananas once a year, and that would be sort of uh, an exciting moment for us in Belarus. But here, we were just being, we, me and Sergey were excited about just about everything. And I'm sure for our parents on the flip side was okay, but we have to spend all this money on groceries and now obviously we have to figure out how to make a living. And so Sergey's right, our mom's ability to speak English clearly, uh, a lot of burden fell on her. And so she probably was the first one to get a job, right? Um, this was a woman that, again, was a successful educator, uh, formerly an assistant principal, taught English as a foreign language in the Soviet Union, but obviously came here without having all the necessary licenses that it takes to become a teacher, which can take years to, to get. And so even though she knew English, uh, the options were limited. And so she had to get a job uh, at a nursing home taking care of an elderly woman, but she had to swallow her pride and provide for the family. And similarly, our dad, uh, you know, when he was actually in Belarus, and we mentioned in our last episode that he had education leaders and ministers from all over the world come and visit him to learn about his model. He remembers having American educators come and tell him, hey, if you ever come to the States, let us know. But when he got here, it became very clear that uh, he needed to learn English in order to get any kind of job in, in the education field. Even as, even as an advisor to other educators and educator, education reformists. And so at first he thought, well, let me spend a couple of years learning English. But as a 53-year-old, he realized that was going to be very difficult. And then what's going to happen? How are we going to support the family while he's learning English? So he decided to basically table that uh, and potentially never do education again. Uh, but instead... Uh, he he had to figure out how to get a job, or how to get paid, any kind of job, no matter what it took. And so one of the first jobs that he had was uh, pumping gas, working for a Russian guy at a gas station right outside of Worcester, Massachusetts. PhD from Soviet Belarus, who's used to giving lectures to hundreds, if not thousands of people and has books written in the libraries in Moscow, is pumping gas. Uh, at a gas station. So you have to have a healthy 
uh, amount of self-confidence and self-awareness to not get super depressed in that situation and just bite the bullet and do this stuff. Literally 365 days earlier when he was flying all over the Soviet Union, you know, giving talks, uh, he noticed uh, a documentary. One of the documentaries that was made about him was playing at the airport. Uh, so to go from that to maybe maybe it was a year and a half later at this point, but pumping gas at a gas station, of course, uh, would be tough for anybody. But both my father and uh, our father and our mother, they had a tough skin. And they had sort of one primary goal in mind, which is, okay, we have these two young kids. We just got them out of the Soviet Union because it was no longer safe for us to be there. Now you have to work. That's the only thing you can do. So they had to regress, so to speak, and uh, swallow their pride, and both my parents took on jobs that were obviously uh, not ideal and not what they envisioned themselves doing when they came to America, given their education, what they've been able to achieve. But somehow, still, despite all that, within six years of moving to America, we were moving into a 4,000-square-foot house in the suburbs uh, where our dad at this point was running a business with three locations that would end up putting us through university. This next clip is from episode 32 with our interview with Kerry Smith of Big Ass Fans who had a big ass exit of his company. He sold it for $500 million and uh, his story is awesome because he actually waited to sell that company for that much because he wanted his early employees to become millionaires through the process. Not only that, but he grew it to that level without raising a dime of outside capital. And in this clip, he talks about how he came up with this idea after working for 14 years on another business that wasn't doing as well. When you're looking for something, I, I think there are markers uh, that you have to look for when you're starting a business, when you're looking for a product or you're looking for a service. Y you should be looking for something that is out of the ordinary. And what was out of the ordinary with the fans? Well, they weren't ordinary size fans. I mean, our fans uh, were 24 feet in diameter, some of them. And it was something that uh, the people at at in the beginning didn't quite understand. I mean, why in God's name would you want a 24-foot diameter fan? Well, uh, the reason people, we were able to sell them, I, and I knew this, uh, was that in large industrial facilities, which I learned about when I was trying to put water on their roofs, are an incredibly uh, uncomfortable place to work in the summertime, at least in the States. They don't air condition these places. And um, by offering a huge fan that, that covered, gosh, between 10 and 20,000 square feet of area, uh, you could keep a lot of people comfortable and you could, uh, they would be much, much more productive. And the people that were buying the fans recognized this right off, as you would if you ran a big industrial plant. And, and I've run big industrial plants and I can tell you, hell yeah, People, that's what they want. The, the guys and the gals working out there want to be comfortable. And it was a very, very popular way uh, to, to keep people comfortable and keep them on the work uh, floor and retain them. Uh, and I will say that I knew that part before I went in uh, to it. But 
I don't think I would have ever gone into business selling ordinary size fans because I mean, what what's the what's the hook? So I think you you're always looking for a hook. If you're making the same thing that everybody else is making, who the heck cares about that? That's a commodity. But as a business person, uh, as an entrepreneur, you want a monopoly. That's what you're looking for. You want to control the entire market, and the way you control the market is you first entry. And if you're the first gal or guy to get into the market, trust me, you're going to own it. And now there's lots of other little parts and pieces uh, you have to pay attention to, but but you've got to do that. And I think that I, I, I sold the business uh, in December of 2017, and I think over that, that period of time from 99 to 2017, the end of 2017, that uh, we amassed 75% market share. You hold a 75% market share, you run the market. It is yours. Everything about it is yours. Um, and that's that's what a real entrepreneur wants. I love that you mentioned that piece of it because I think it is incredibly important when you're trying to identify business opportunity, differentiation in your unique value proposition is incredibly important. And um, uh, I think you said earlier that when you were first starting out, you thought it was maybe 50,000 customers was the whole market. And you learned, I guess, pretty quickly that the market was much bigger. But you had already identified part of the market that you understood very well, which is big industrial plants. Mm -hmm. And you had some experience there, you understood their pain, and you understood that a way that you could deliver value to them is through this differentiated product, which is incredible. And I'm actually starting to thread a story here because, you know, you 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 grew up very independent. You uh, had some success in high school with that program that kind of made you realize, okay, I can do stuff for myself. Uh, you had some jobs and eventually you, I guess, took somewhat of a risk, but you probably didn't see it as a risk uh, to start a business. And you started it with that a roof cooling idea, which I guess you had when you were younger. So you, you did what you knew. Uh, and that kind of evolved from there. So where did the idea for the actual big-ass fans come from? Where, what was the transition from the cooling system where it was a kind of a slog to run, you were doing everything, still got it to $1.5 million a year, to then this other business that you saw as a unique value proposition, unique opportunity uh, that you were then obviously able to grow to hundreds of times that size? I, I did an awful lot of writing uh, articles. This was kind of pre-internet, and uh, I had a, a lot of uh, success working with uh, trade magazines. And, and I paid a lot of attention to trade magazines because they would call me and ask me to write. And, and uh, it, was a, it, it was a good way to explain what I was trying to do with whatever product. Um, and uh, it was also free. Man, you're doing somebody a favor, and they'll take you up on it. So I read a lot of trade uh, magazines, and I saw in one uh, there was a small machine shop that uh, had this big fan, and, and really it was just a little ad that showed two guys in this huge fan. And I thought, holy cow, that's a great idea. And so the first thing I did was lose the ad, uh, and I didn't call those people, which was which was stupid. So don't ever, ever, ever. That's another thing. Don't ever think you're going to get another opportunity. You should always leap on every single, every single opportunity. This last clip is from our interview with Julie Smolensky. If you've ever drank Lifeway Kefir, the yogurt drink, you'll know who she is, or you probably won't know who she is. 
but you'll know what the company is. It's, it's a, a publicly company. traded company, yes. Exactly. And she's our first interview with a public company CEO. We actually have another one coming up in the next few months that's going to be really exciting with another female leader. But in this episode, we talked about exactly what happened when she was forced to take the helm of the company at just 27 years old after it had already become a public company and what it was like to be a female leader in that role at such a young age. You mentioned to us in the pre-interview that um, you thought originally that you were going to do social work. Is that right? Right, yeah. So um, you were you were trying to make that a career. Uh, and, uh, of course, you had the the unfortunate experience of, of your dad leaving this world very early. Um, he was in his 50s uh, in 2002. And you were 27 years old. And there's this opportunity to take over the company and run it now. Right. Um, can you tell us about what was going through your mind when that, uh, I mean, you obviously emotions were high and that must have been a difficult decision to make. How did it happen? You know, did the board just approach you and say, hey, Julie, we need you to run the company or did you just say or did you make that decision for yourself? How did that actually come come to play? Yeah, I mean, I made the decision right away. Um, like the minute that it happened, it wasn't even a question for me. Um but uh, so I had worked with my dad for five years before he'd passed away. So I, I um, did leave grad school for psychology. I left school to go full time with my dad. I sort of realized that, you know, what I wanted to do, my, my goal was to change the world, to help people make um, better lifestyle choices. And I actually studied advertising and its uh, impact on uh, dieting behavior. So it wasn't completely out of the uh, space. So. I found myself in my dad's office working on uh, just working part time. Honestly, I had no intention of working for him. And within two weeks, I fell in love. Suddenly, this time it clicked. You know, all the other times I just didn't want to have anything to do with business. I was focused on psychology and changing the world. But some reason, something this the, the two weeks that I worked with him, I heard these marketing conversations in a way that I'd never heard. I don't, you know, I think maybe he was just really focused on the health benefits and I started paying attention to that. And I thought, you know, I could help people make better food choices with my dad's product, my family's product, that it offers so many health benefits. You know, it it could be a for-profit venture. I don't have to work in a nonprofit capacity and make the world a better place that way. And I became obsessed. I couldn't sleep. I became obsessed with marketing plans and sales plans and all of it. So I left school, went full-time with my dad. I worked side-by-side side with him for five years until he passed away. And the next day, it was just I knew that I was going to take over. Um, other people didn't. I did have to fight for it. Mm. Uh, but it was no question in my mind. Um, and then I think with very quickly, I think anyone who was not supporting me became supportive. And... You know, I just thought failure is not an option. My parents had risked too much, had given up too much to let it all go. Um, you know, what would be the option to sell the company? We would have gotten peanuts for it. It would have all been gone. Um, so, you know, I thought we are still in the middle of executing on our plan. We haven't even started. Um, and so... I just got to work. I put my head down. My brother, you know, he was really, really young. He was just six months out of school. Um, we just did everything we had to do. I sometimes worked like 22-hour days, like literally slept two hours um, the first few weeks. And uh, I think for the first four years, I kind of really didn't feel human. I was still mourning my father. And 
I looked at the company as a place where I could put that energy and my sadness into doing the the work that he wanted to do. And I was really, really encouraged and inspired by all that he had done. And I knew for sure that he had a lot more and my mom had a lot more obstacles and that my challenges were different than theirs. While I had challenges that I was a young woman and you know, youth being probably the biggest uh, issue there, uh, I knew that they had their obstacles and, you know, here I was a young woman educated in the United States with a lot more resources. Um, I should be able to do this. Wow. Um, that's so, well, one thing that stands out to me that I hope people don't overlook is that you found your passion in the business. It took you some time to get there, but a lot of people think that passion is this like thing that you know, one day you'll get inspired and you'll find it. And sometimes some people get lucky and that happens, but sometimes it actually just takes a mindset shift. You connected the things that you care about, which is bringing a benefit to people, um, some sort of health benefit, some sort of mental health benefit, whatever it might be, to this for-profit venture that through which you could actually have more impact than you otherwise would be able to, most likely. And I think once that clicked for you, it was easier, not easy, but easier to put in those long hours. 100%. If you've listened to all 100 episodes of the show, email us because we're going to send you something. You are a freaking rock star. Pumpkin doesn't count. She was forced to listen to all the edits. <laughs> but seriously, if you've been with us from the very beginning, hell, even if this is your first episode that you're listening, we appreciate that you're giving us your time. We know that uh, there's a, a bunch of podcasts out there, but if we resonate with you and this has helped you in any way, then it's really all worth it for us. That's all we care about. That's why we started this show is we've been advising and mentoring and teaching entrepreneurs and people that want to be startup owners for years now. And we wanted to bring this to more people that might learn even one thing from us that might help them be successful. And so if that happened throughout this podcast, and we feel like it has just from the folks that we've talked to, then we're happy. And that's why we're continuing to do this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing with your friends. If you haven't yet, please do. Every little bit helps to grow awareness of what we're doing with our content. And here's to 100 more. It's The The Mentors Mentors signing signing off. off. That was lame. (laughs) It was fine. People love it. it They love it. They love it because we're twins. twins.